Good morning. We're going to be reading from the book of Titus, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 11. If you guys want to join me by reading, that would be great. Otherwise, enjoy the listen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves are once, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of, the, of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to devote, oops, sorry, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The word of the Lord. Father God, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to be here together. I just ask that you bless our hearts right now with this teaching that we can absorb and let it impact our lives so that we can go out and be your light and be your, your word in action and your love in action, Lord. And I just ask that you bless the teaching. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, Kim. So if you want alliteration, pastoring, priorities, and pathways. We're entering into our third and final pastoral epistle. These letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, are letters to individuals, but they are to be read by all people. And as I was reflecting on this book, there's an odd gift with these. These letters are personal in that they're from Paul to his protégés in the faith, if you will, and, but they're personal in that they're addressing individual struggles that each one had. They're instructive on church life and conduct, and what's, again, strange but great is that the letter is open to all. There's no secrets in how the church is to operate and how pastors are to conduct themselves, what kind of qualifications they are to have. It's all there for every follower of Jesus and really everybody in the world to read. 
Pastors don't and shouldn't get to write their own job descriptions. And that's part of the legacy of Paul and the continued gift to us. We see that in Paul, his, his life and every life is encapsulated in something that you've been given in how you lead with those gifts and what you share with one another. Every life is con- consists of uh, an amount of stewardship, how you go about leadership, and then discipleship with one another. First, Paul was entrusted and stewarded the gospel. He says in 2 Corinthians, I believe it is, that he uh, was given this gift this treasure that is the gospel in this jar of clay being his own body. And he went about all of the world sharing the good news of Jesus. Uh, It's been said by, I think, John Maxwell, the leadership guru, that leadership is influence. And so everybody has some amount of leadership in their lives. But godly influence, godly leadership is the influence towards Jesus's word, towards Jesus's will, towards Jesus's way in the midst of the world. Much ungodly leadership is towards my will, my way, my words in the world, but Paul would say that shouldn't be the way you go about things. That's a really gross paraphrase of my own. Jesus said, uh, it, it, it shall not be that way among you all. The first will be last, the last will be first. And then discipleship, how we interact with and train one another. Paul was going towards health and wholeness and, and pointing Timothy and Titus towards the grace of God while not ignoring the difficulty of the people in the places where they were. And this, I believe, is what is needed today, is that God's people uh, have a a good estimation and and acknowledgement of what they've been gifted with. You can just think about your life. What have you been entrusted with? One, the gospel. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have within you the good news of salvation for all people. How do you go about stewarding that in life? And then your resources. I think the The other uh, cliche alliteration is your time, your talent, your treasure, what you've been gifted with in life. How do you go about that? What aspect of leadership do you have in your life? And how are you going about discipling those around you? My hope in covering Titus is that we would attend to and look at this text and much of it. I'm I'm biting off more than I can chew and attempting to cover this book in the next 34 minutes. And connect then what Paul is instructing Timothy to our current moment and context. So again, pastoring priorities and pathways. First, pastoring. Paul and Titus were co-workers and companions. He is not mentioned in the book of Acts. You can read all uh, 28 chapters of it. You will not find Titus's name. But you will see him mentioned in 2 Corinthians and Galatians and 2 Timothy. Titus is in Crete, and we see why in chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So two things Titus is to do, order and elders. But to understand this letter and Paul's instruction to Titus and Titus's role in Crete, you have to understand this place. Crete, according to history, was not an easy place. And to um, make our resident cartographer, Mike Gaston, happy, I've brought you a map of where Crete is. You can see it's a pixelated map because it's a screenshot of Google Earth, but it's in uh, Greece and kind of there in the south middle of the Mediterranean Sea. 
Now, if you know anything about islands, islands can produce things, and that is island boys, right? <laughs> Anybody? Island boys? The millennials and Gen Z? If you don't know about the island boys and you want to lose a few brain cells, you can give it a Google later on. But Crete was known for uh, piracy, and some described it as an ancient Vegas or Macau. Fun fact that's totally worthless, Macau has seven times the amount of uh, gambling revenue that Las Vegas does. If you want any stories about Macau, go see Anthony Garcia. He's got a couple good ones. So Paul, in writing to Titus, in Crete is dealing with both the religious and the rebellious. And again, as my research went a little deeper probably than it should have on Crete, uh, it was a wild place with some wild people. And you get a glimpse. Again, there's some religious folks that would follow Paul to just about every single place, and then there's some rebellious. Chapter 1, verse 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. We learn more about them from the book of Galatians. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain that which they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And there's fun disagreement around what that means, whether Paul's saying, yeah, that's true, like that's what Cretans are, or the testimony about him quoting one of the prophets is true. Either way, I like just thinking it's probably both. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the place that Titus is in. Tim Chester, a uh, British, UK theologian, he says this in his Titus for You commentary. In verse 12, Paul calls the Cretans evil brutes. It is a damning indictment and probably not something you would want to say of a group of people unless you were able. To cite one of their own as the source, which is precisely what Paul is doing here, one of Cretan's own prophets, the philosopher Epimenides, thinks this of his own countrymen. In the Greek language, Cretan became a byword for dishonesty. To Crete was to lie. The phrase translated evil brutes is literally, and this is hilarious, dangerous animals. Crete was famous for having no dangerous animals, but the saying was that the human inhabitants more than made up for this lack of wildlife. Welcome to Crete. If that's not enough, Polybius, a Greek philosopher from 150 BC, says this. The laws allow them, this is the Cretans, to possess as much land as they can get with no limitation whatever. Money is so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but in the highest degree creditable. And in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatever. Again, all their offices are annual and on a democratical footing. The Cretans, by ingrained avarice, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murders, and civil wars, yet they regard these facts as not affecting their contention, but are bold enough to speak of the two constitutions as alike. 
translation, it's a hot mess there. And it would seem as though there are some similarities to the world we live in and inhabit today. Again, not all the same, but similarities. You still have a religious movement that says, follow the rules, our rules. Not the way of Jesus, not the truth of Scripture, but what we say and how we say it. You have the religious contingent, the the circumcision party that is putting on people heavier yokes than they were meant to bear. Then you have the rebellious, the you-do-you-boo crew. I saw a post earlier this week online that says, if it makes you happy, it doesn't have to make sense to others. And I went, really? That sounds kind of sort of nice, but where's the line drawn on that continuum? That's the world we inhabit today. That is the world of Crete. And so what is the solution for that? Well, one of them, and I would say the primary one, that Paul says to Titus is shepherding. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, indisciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul is pointing Titus to raise up men who look to, depend on, and point others to Jesus. Now, probably then, and also today, pastoring has fallen out of favor. And and I believe it's likely a perennial problem that what we face today, it's not that it's, it has its own unique challenges, but history tends to be cyclical. I think pastoring has fallen out of favor today in part due to abuses of the office and a legitimate distrust that has happened, again, as pastors have abused their position. In other ways, it's not necessarily due to that, but an overall deterioration in trust in institutions is authority that we see kind of far and wide. But what we see lined up in Scripture isn't often enough for pastors or the people that they are called to love and to serve. What is your expectation for pastors? And and I'm not saying this simply to butter your bread at all, but so far, for the most part, it's been a joy to be a pastor within this church. And you all are, for the most part, and again, I, I cushion that, there's been stories. There's been things. But for the most part, God has created a very sweet family that is doing life together here and is a joy to pastor. And, and again, I'm, you're here, Bill's here, Josh is here. Like I, They can all hold me accountable. Like I'm not lying. I'm not creeding when I say that. 
But what's happened and what I see in my own vocation and in other churches and among pastors I know is that pastors have grown discontent in what scripture tells them to do, to shepherd people. One of my heroes of the faith is Eugene Peterson and what he has to say about pastoring is gold. He says this, the vocation of pastor has been replaced by the strategies of religious entrepreneurs with business plans. Boom goes the dynamite. Why? Because we, pastors and God's people, have misunderstood, again, the, the stewardship of the gospel, what leadership's supposed to be, and how the body of Christ is to disciple one another. The church is not a conveyor belt for goods, services, and self-help. It is a family of forgiven sinners learning the grace of God together. If you want to know what I and your elders think about church, it is not a conveyor belt for goods, services, and self-help. It is a family of forgiven sinners learning the grace of God together. That's who we are. That's what we are to be about. Again, Eugene Peterson. My job is not to solve people's problems or to make them happy, but help them see grace operating in their lives. Congregations are composed of people who, upon entering a church, leave behind what people on the street name or call them. A church can never be reduced to a place where goods and services are exchanged. It must never be a place where a person is labeled. It can never be a place where gossip is perpetuated. Before anything else, it is a place where a person is named and greeted, whether implicitly or explicitly, in Jesus' name. A place where dignity is conferred. And so when we reduce church to simply services or productions or shows or a thing that we do on Sundays, we're, we're misplacing dignity from what God would impart to his people. That's why it's intentional that we call Sunday mornings gatherings, not services. And again, I'm not speaking shame on any other church but that's our conviction. It's not a service where we come and receive religious goods and services, where you hear maybe a halfway decent sermon, sing some decent songs, and get a certain particular feeling. It is a gathering together of God's family under the authority of his word, where we celebrate and take part in communion together, where we learn from and are instructed from who God is and what he says in his word, where we read scripture out loud together, where we pray out loud together, and we share in life together. For Titus, he's called to pastor. And the scripture uses the words elder, oversee, or shepherd. They're all the, the main words and metaphors for the role and reality of what a pastor is to do. And then the question can become, okay, if you're a pastor, you're an elder, an overseer, what does that look like? Well, we get a bit of a glimpse of the characteristics and the, the type of quality of person that it takes in verse five through nine, and then we see what he's to do in chapter two, verse one, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Again, Titus isn't to just, you know, kind of create a curriculum of how to create a better you. He's to teach doctrine, truth, that lines up with who God is and how he calls his people to live. That's going to include rebuking, instructing, exhorting. 
I wonder what it looked like in the first century, how many you know, coffees or teas or what that looked like. It wasn't simply pulpit ministry, but kind of an all-in-life encompassing thing. And that doctrine, and again, I don't know your experience with doctrine. Often it's like, well, we'll do the fun teaching stuff and then we'll do the doctrinal stuff. We'll do the deep work and then Sundays are just kind of this surface level again. Felt need, felt problem. Get a couple sticky sayings for you and go. But all of the instruction is to root people in the truth and the foundations of God and the gospel. It's not to be detached. Doctrine is never to be detached from real life. And that's what Paul goes on to instruct in verses 2 through 10. We aren't going to get into all of it. That right relationships are a part of that outworking in the household of God. He addresses older men, older women, younger men, younger women, bondservants. And he is not real clear with the delineation of age between older and younger. And so, you know, sometimes you get 45-year-old pastors saying that they're younger pastors. And... Scripture isn't explicit on that, so we'll give him a pass at one time. But then you wonder, what is the purpose of all this instruction of, you know, again, men, women, bond servants in verse 10. And Paul says this at the end, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The idea is intentionally placing and arranging. Another translation is garnishing. I, I think there's two things that come in my mind. Uh, the first is a Thanksgiving table, and I love the word cornucopia. On, like that, that's intentionally put there to accentuate and, and bring about a certain thing, right? The second is, is pearls, like that, that you may adorn. I think pearls are meant to be adorned. And the thought I had this week is I've never seen uh, pearls underneath a turtleneck, ever. And maybe that could be a new style that we could bring about. But why is that? You see people with turtlenecks, and then they, they wear that so that the pearls are adorned. Israel Adinsanya, right? Pearl necklaces. <laughs> Anthony's giving me the, oh, bud, just move along. This isn't, this isn't working. Yeah, yeah. But what he is saying is all of this is instruction, again, isn't just simply for your best life. Though I think when we follow and root ourselves in the doctrine of God, it does produce something better within our lives. And it is this, that we display more accurately the beauty of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. He's showing how we live reflects what we believe. And this isn't original to me, but I don't know who it belongs to, that the fruit of our lives shows the roots of our lives. And so the priority for God's people is life with Christ and living with one another to show and display, to adorn the truth of God in Christ. So maybe this week you can ask yourself, what does it look like to adorn the gospel of God in your life? What does it look like to share, to show, to display the beauty of Jesus to those around you? What might that look like? The Christian faith then and now has never been merely about words or a belief system, but it's about a truth that takes root in a heart that results in a life lived. So in this letter, the priorities are clear for God's people. It's salvation from Christ that results in being sent into the world. 
world. The grace, and, and that's such a word that is pregnant with uh, beauty and meaning and depth, but the grace that is only found in Jesus rescues sinners from death and releases them for life in the world. I think for myself, and I'm just preaching in the mirror right now, I lose sight of that fact daily and need to come back to that fact daily. Because when I do, something's different. When you reflect on the fact that you, I, were once dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are alienated from life with God, and because of the cross and resurrection, and because somebody told me something at some point in time, and Jesus used that to rescue me into life and eternity with him that is taking place now, (laughs) does that not do something? Does that not produce something in your heart and your mind? It it slows me down a little bit. It it increases a little bit the level of patience that I need to have with myself and others around me. It makes me more grateful. It just kind of is refreshing in so many ways. And we see that this is the effect the gospel is to have on people's lives. Chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does that salvation do? When it appears, well, it teaches, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the gospel and the grace of God trains us to renounce sin and death and say yes to life. Many of us have grown up with or have somewhat of what I would call like a dare version of Christianity. If you had dare as a kid, just say no to drugs. Anybody? Just say no. (laughs) Then what? Uh, No. They didn't tell me what else to do. But what grace trains us to do is yes, you renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, but then there's this whole yes in shape that life is to take, that you say yes to living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in the present age. Now what I want to ask you is who comes to mind when you think about that? Who is somebody that you know that has said no to these things and yes to grace? Who's the, the person that comes to your mind when you think of godliness that, that maybe gave you a vision where you're like, that person's different and not just religious, not just moral, not just the better than thou, holier than thou type. Again, you've, many of you have heard some of my stories. For me, this was around 15, 16, where my friend Colin went on a mission trip to Taiwan and he came back a completely different person. And I went, that's weird. He's different. And my best friend Colin started working at this church and volunteering, and he was with this guy called Anthony. And Anthony was discipling Colin, and Colin's different. And I'm sitting there going like, hmm. Flipping burgers at Burger King, 15, 16 years old, going, that's different. And I had no, like, I had all these thoughts and plans for my life, but no real direction. All of a sudden, I'm like, well, maybe I'll hang around in the church a little bit more. This guy, Anthony, seems to like me. 
He's asking me questions about my life and wants to know about my BMX bike. He's coming out to these dirt jumps that we're building illegally behind Costco, and he's like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, where, where were you on that? Like, hey, this is probably private property and you should be doing this, bud. <laughs> and something changed in me as I saw godliness take shape in multiple lives. Where it wasn't this, don't do this, don't do that, don't have fun. If, again, if you know Anthony, you're having fun. Most of the time. Beth takes the brunt of the not-so-fun stuff, and, and Silas, too. Again, they probably can share stories with you all. But again, the point is, who comes to mind, and how is, is Christ going? We, we, we're going to have revival breakout here in a second. That's what God is calling us into. Again, a deep knowledge of our own sin and a running after life and grace. That's what followers of Jesus are to be about as we wait for the return of Jesus. And so it's this amazing orientation that followers of Jesus have, that we remember the grace of God that has appeared. We are awaiting his return, and that situates us here and now. You see that in verse 13. And 14, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And Titus's role in all this, verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so you see the center in, in the synergy of li the lives of followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, of God's people, it's, it's Christ. The center is Christ and life with one another. And so he says, Titus, declare this, exhort this. These are the priorities for God's people. But then he gives some pathways of what that can look like in public life. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. I, I don't know if you've seen this as you've watched television or YouTube. Um, there's an election coming up. <laughs> seen some ads. I actually subscribed to YouTube Premium, so I don't have to see them because it's obnoxious. It's election week, and I don't want to uh, waste too much time, but I'm going to share a simple thought with you all on election week. Here in Titus, you can see in 1 Timothy, Romans, even what Jesus says, here's, here's the, the pathway for public life. It's praying. And Paul says to Timothy, for kings, those in high positions, you see in Romans 13, kind of the idea of how we're to relate to government being trusting God first and foremost, and his providence that the people are in the position that they're in, we're placed there by his providence, ultimately, they don't wield the sword in vain, all of that. Jesus rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. Caesar is tax, God is all of your life. And I was reminded that politics has its place in the Christian life. It is addressed in the New Testament. But it isn't the number one priority. In fact, in you know, all of this instruction, it gets a verse in these three chapters. And that's why I'm not spending an entire sermon on it. And here's, here's my, my alliterated sentence for us all. 
The primary pathway to engaging politically is prayer. That's it. Your primary pathway to engaging politically is prayer. And how many of us can confess and repent of the fact that we don't do that? We post online, or we complain, or we bicker, or we argue, or we judge people who have politics different than our own. The primary pathway for engaging politically is prayer. And then after that, it is a practice of love. Look at verse 2. It comes right after verse 1. These things are attached. Speak evil of no one, and God's people repented. Avoid quarreling, and we can repent. To be gentle, and we can repent. To show perfect courtesy towards all people. But what about the political opponent that I don't like? It's not there. All people. So again, we can repent and follow Jesus into this better pathway of life. It starts with prayer and then flows into a practice of love. This is the pathway to practicing Christian life in the public square. In case you go, ah, oh, that's so hard. Where does Paul go? It's beautiful. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by God and hating one another. I love that Paul lumps himself into this collection of horrible sins. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious man. He followed all the rules, but he realizes that life apart from Christ then was to be detached from life with God. That he too, even though he followed all the rules and did all the good things, he himself was once, we ourselves were once foolish, disobeyed, led astray to various passions and pleasures. He's saying I, he's no different than the island boys of Crete at all. He's right there with them. He's looking in the mirror before he's railing against those apart from Jesus. And then this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the good news in a nutshell that Jesus has saved us, and not only saved us, but has richly poured out his Holy Spirit upon us and empowered us and brought us into his family and has promised that we're heirs with Christ. And so right there, he's giving Titus and us the doctrine of salvation and grace that flows through God's Holy Spirit that's been given to us through Jesus Christ. And the way of life for followers of Jesus is based on that gift of grace. It is a completely different value system through which we are called to operate. And the source and the power of it all is God by his Holy Spirit. The Bible Project in their little video on Titus said that it's the transforming love of the three-in-one God. You see God the Father at work, you see God the Son at work, and you see God the Holy Spirit empowering and enabling his people for life. This best of all news is to be central and it is to shape every pathway of our lives. 
Paul goes back to it again and again in Titus, that this doctrine leads to a devotion for good works. As Kim read earlier, he says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Again, the grace of God working through the Spirit of God in the people of God. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. But avoid foolish controversy, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For as, as for a person who serves up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The way of life for the people of God is based and rooted in this rich word that is grace. And so church, my hope and prayer for us all is that we would be rooted in and grow in this as we go forward. This is why we partner with Agape House, with Mike, and, and have an outward focus. It's because of the grace that has been shown to us, that is not ours to hoard and to keep to ourselves and get a nice little social Christian clique where we all agree about the same things politically and lifestyle and all that. No, like the agreement in, in the force that holds this motley crew, y'all, me, together, is the grace of God and the truth of the gospel of God. That's what we're attached to. That's what we're centered on. That is our focus. And from that flows life. We aren't going to center on politics ever. If we do, that's where you go to the elders and say, yo, John's making it about politics. Get him out of there. And they correct me. And if I don't repent, then I'm out of there. There's pathways for these things but we're centered on Jesus. We're centered on his grace. Your pastors are committed to this. We're attempting to make the gospel our priority and that from the gospel, pathways are shaped into life where we can share, where we can show, where we can demonstrate both with word and deed the love of our Savior. Who, Guys, have you heard this news? He saved us. Let's pray. And so God, would you forgive us for the ways in which we lose sight of the best of all news, that you, Jesus, came to this earth, that you lived a perfect life, God in the flesh, and you took that life and you laid it down on a cross for our sin, that through you, our lives and the world might be healed by grace. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Not by who we are or what we've done, but sheerly and purely by your grace. Thank you. May that grace invigorate us today, reorient us today, change and transform us today to display your love to those around us, to our family, to our kids, to one another. God, where we're burnt out, where we're tired, where we're resentful, would we be reminded of and place your grace there? Where we're struggling, where we're depressed, where we're anxious, where we're frustrated, where we're 
longing for question or longing for answers to questions of our heart. Would you place your grace there? And God, from this church and from your people, may there be a meaningful impact around us, again, in our families, in our workplaces, in this community, as we're sent out to show the good news of who you are and what you've done. Protect our hearts from all the idols that are around us that long for our affection and attention and lead us in the way of truth and life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.